0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Salt Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of Salt, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. Salt Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these Salt Talks is the same as our goal at our Salt Conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome you to a panel discussion about the future of real estate in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. And our panelists today are Robin Potts and Michael Levy. Uh, Robin is the co-head of real estate investments and director of acquisitions for Canyon Partners Real Estate. Uh, She has been with Canyon for 14 years and is responsible for overseeing the origination and acquisitions of debt and equity investments across Canyon Partners real estate platforms and holds a seat on all Canyon Partners real estate investment committees. Michael Levy is the Chief Executive Officer of Crow Holdings, where he's responsible for leading and overseeing the company's overall business development activities, including strategy, investments, and organizational resources. He joined the firm in 2016 from Morgan Stanley, where he was the chief operating officer for the investment management division and a member of the firm's management committee. Hosting today's talk is a guest host. His name is Jan Bresky. He's the founder of Arixa Capital, which he founded uh, in 2006. And he serves as the managing director and chief investment officer for the firm. In this capacity, he has ultimate responsibility for the firm's investment strategy, risk management, and operations. Prior to founding Arixa, Mr. Bresky was the vice president of acquisitions at Standard Management Company, a Los Angeles based private real estate investment firm. And with no further ado, I'll turn it over to Jan to host today's interview.
1: Terrific, thank you so much, John. And thank you, Robin and Mike for uh, joining this conversation. And why don't we just start out if you could each give a little background on yourself and your firm. Uh, Robin, if you could go first, that'd be great.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, So I co-head real estate investments at Canyon Partners. I've been with the firm since 2006. Uh, Canyon is an investment manager headquartered in Los Angeles. We have about 26 billion of assets under management. Uh, The firm was founded in 1990 and has a wide variety of strategies across uh, corporate credit as well as real estate. And within our real estate platforms, we're active up and down the capital stack. So we invest in both debt and equity strategies. Um, And we're active across all property types in the top 40 markets across the US. Uh, So that includes being active in ground up development, repositionings, lease up situations, and distressed opportunities as well. Um, And our market activity is about evenly split between our debt and our equity strategies.
1: Terrific. Mike, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your firm and also uh, the kind of the legacy of your firm uh, as well. your Your firm has an interesting history in our industry.
3: Sure. Um, well, uh, first, thank you for having having me. I am a uh, a lifelong New Yorker who built a career in real estate finance and five years ago moved to Dallas, Texas to join the Crow family uh, in the real estate business. Uh, Jan, to your to your point, in 1948, a guy named Trammel Crow started building industrial buildings. And over the past 70 years, the Crow family has overseen uh, numerous businesses across the real estate industry throughout that period of time. Uh, the company is owned by the Crow family today, and uh, we're engaged primarily in two areas of real estate. One is as a real estate developer, we have a national platform across the United States. We develop uh multifamily properties, industrial properties, office buildings across the United States and that's about half of our business activities in real estate. And the other half of our activities are as a real estate private equity investor through funds we invest in value add real estate strategies throughout the United States.
1: So Mike, is it fair to say then that on the family side your holding period is longer and potentially forever and then on the private equity side I guess you have to hit return targets, so you need to exit after a certain number of years?
3: Yeah, Jan, we have three. Per- I, I would say we have three perspectives on real estate. You know, one is as a developer, uh, as someone who's out in the marketplace on a local basis, securing land, going through the entitlement process, buying concrete and steel, and building buildings. And we have that perspective as an on-the-grounds real estate firm. Our real estate private equity business has a slightly different perspective where we're raising capital, alongside partners in comingo vehicles. And we're, we're targeting higher return strategies with you sh- relatively short duration, three to five-year investment periods. And finally, in the third area, the family, on behalf of the family over the years, has acquired or developed many properties that we owned, some of them 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And so we have the perspective of a long-term owner-operator in that component of our real estate business.
1: Terrific. So, why don't we go into a recent investment that you made since COVID? And I think this will be a good way to segue into where's the market today and where do you see the opportunities? Uh, Robin, maybe you could give us an example of, of an area where you saw some value and maybe outline a particular investment you made. And then, Mike, I'd love for you to do the same.
2: Sure. Um, so COVID you know, has reset the marketplace in a number of really interesting ways. So from our perspective, where we have you know, platforms that can go within the debt area as well as the equity area. Uh, There's been an expanded opportunity set in terms of what we can do relative to what we saw over the last eight years. Um, In general, within the marketplace, we've found that the debt markets have reopened more quickly than on the equity side, although the equity side is definitely uh, now resurfacing with the vaccine rollout. Um, So on the debt side, I think, you know, the interesting situations from our perspective uh, that have emerged post-COVID have been on the loan sale opportunities. Um, We've seen following COVID since last March, over 13 billion of loan sales that have come to market. Um, And that's really been driven by uh, initially margin calls. So a lot of different lenders uh, from debt funds to mortgage rates and other types of lenders that had um, mismatched Leverage facilities uh, and faced obligations to pay down um, uh, the leverage facilities on their portfolio at a very inopportune time. So that created some forced selling situations. Um, And now we're seeing uh, that those margin call situations have passed, but uh, you still have a lot of loan sales being brought to market by banks and debt funds uh, and other lenders who are just rebalancing and repositioning their portfolio based on. Uh, where they want concentration and different areas of stress and distress that they're seeing within their balance sheet. Um, And so we've been able to uh, capture this opportunity set, which really hasn't been uh, available for a decade since the great financial crisis. Um, So one of the interesting transactions uh, that we recently completed was the acquisition of a portfolio of loans uh, in excess of $300 uh, across a variety of uh, different properties, uh, the largest concentration being multifamily. Um, and in our view, just a really interesting way to gain access to a repriced situation um, as a result of you know, a lenders uh, need to rebalance their portfolio um, on what in our view were really high quality assets. Um, so you know, interesting dynamic in the marketplace where um, kind of secondary opportunities are available uh, in, in a much different way than they were a year ago.
1: So, Robin, I'm going to ask you a few detailed questions about that, and if you <laughs> if you can't provide all the detail, then just provide what you can. So, you bought that at a discount to par. I'm assuming what kind of discount? Is it a few percentage discount, or is it is it does it get to be bigger than that? And so, that, and follow on question would be. Um, it, it, did you perceive that the, that the debt was really underwater or across, or I'm guessing a few assets were, but probably the multifamily wasn't underwater?
2: So um, as you can imagine, I can't uh, get into specifics on that transaction, but I can just kind of give you the general landscape of, of the loan sale dynamics that are happening. So um, there are loan sales brought to market that are performing, that are uh, needing to be sold because of the seller's balance sheet issues. There are loan sales where the as underlying assets in the loan are stressed. Uh, so maybe they're performing, but moving toward non-performance pretty quickly. Um, or there are loans being brought to market that are true non-performing already. They're already in maturity defaults. And so kind of the level of discount between those three categories varies pretty substantially. Um, so you, you've seen a lot of loans um, trade, you know, in the 90s or at par, um, uh, but the true non-performing loans, uh, you know, those those ultimately are a much more tailored discount because you're really anticipating to end up owning the property. Um, and I would say that the, the true non-performing loans that end up being uh, ultimately priced at a very significant discount, um, uh, are much more concentrated toward hospitality and retail, um, given the overall you know challenges that COVID has presented toward those. assets. Right,
1: prices. I'd love to come back to that because this whole this is an area of uh, that kind of speaks to what's how how everything's repriced and what types of assets have repriced. Just one last question before we go back to Mike for one of his uh, recent investments. Uh, who who's actually selling? Like, where are the transactions actually? clearing the market right now, because there's been a lot of talk about sales of debt, but but who, is it debt funds that are the first to sell? Is it um, special servicers of CMBS loans? Is it banks? Is it domestic, regional, national, international? Who, who are you seeing that's actually first to acknowledge what's changed and ready to sell? Uh,
2: debt funds have been the most active sellers uh, in what we've seen. Um, banks and insurance companies have also brought a number of loan situations to market. Uh, the least active seller has been CMBS. Um, and it's, I think that's pretty interesting. And I think the, the reason for that is um, it takes special servicers such a long time to make decisions and for loans within CMBS to work through the system. Um, whereas debt funds can make much, uh, you know, much more expedient decisions in terms of how to adjust their balance sheet. Um, and we've seen, uh, you know, banks be able to do that as well. Um, but CMBS will just take, I think, a lot more time to work through the system. Um, I would also say that uh, there have been many situations where loan sales have been brought to market, and then they ultimately didn't transact, and the, you uh, loan holder just used (laughs) the bids as a way to mark their balance sheet. Um, So kind of sussing out whether someone's a real seller or not has been a challenge throughout this process. Um, And, uh, you know, in addition, uh, a lot of lenders have taken the approach of uh, working with their borrowers and providing forbearance and modifications and and extensions. So, um, you know, as much as possible. I think that's the approach lenders have taken. And then the loan sales that have been brought to market, um, for the most part, have been situations that uh, kind of are past that forbearance and modification. um, And for whatever reason, that's no longer possible uh, to do, which is really, I think, most lenders' first choice.
1: Terrific. Mike, um, tell us about a recent transaction that that you did at Crow Holdings.
3: Sure, I'm, I'm I'm gonna comment on that investment theme as opposed suppose, as, uh, as compared to a one-off investment, and but that investment theme is e-commerce. Um, and that theme isn't distress from e-commerce, but growth from e-commerce, and specifically what I'm talking about is in the industrial space. Um, we have seen, you know, this was a trend we could see beginning in 1994 with Netscape Navigator, that the beginning of e-commerce and people were gonna buy goods online. But what what we had happen here as we went through COVID in this period of time is an explosion of online commerce that has driven uh, the fundamentals of industrial real estate to levels that are unprecedented in certainly my lifetime. And industrial real estate today across the United States is being driven by three primary forces. One is just the sheer penetration of online commerce and the movement from retail stores into industrial fulfillment centers to get to the customer. But there are a couple other trends that are bubbling up and have been bubbling up, one directly as a result of COVID, and we've moved from a world of just-in-time inventories to resilient inventories. And if corporate America needs to have just a little bit more inventory of certain essential goods like pharmaceuticals or other supply chain disruption items, that, that small amount of additional space results in large amounts of additional demand for industrial real estate and then finally, you had this last trend, which was taking place pre COVID, but I, it's pretty clear it's continuing today, which is onshoring and the movement of manufacturing around the world. And because of tax and trade uh, matters moving to the United States. And so, what we've been doing in response to that is financing the development and developing uh, significant amounts of industrial real estate across the major distribution markets in the United States we will probably this year finance and or develop 25 million square feet of industrial real estate. And so it's not about one industrial building or the exact economics of the building in Los Angeles versus the building in New Jersey. But fundamentally, we're seeing this across the country in the major distribution markets, unprecedented levels of rent growth and unprecedented levels of net absorption. And, and that's been say, an opportunity.
1: When you us. say financing um, the development, Mike, is that Equity financing? So are you providing JV equity to the local uh, developer, typically?
3: Correct. We're we're not a lender. Uh, We're not in the credit business. But we have a real estate development company that builds industrial properties across the United States. And we have a real estate private equity business that that partners with other developers and provides the equity financing for their projects. And so we see the market from both lenses.
1: And do you, is that uh traditional JV equity or is it ever take the form of sort of fixed return preferred equity that can be refinanced out later by the owner? How, or is it all the above?
3: It's traditional common JV equity. It's we're traditional, you know, 95, five, uh, mm-hmm. you know, common equity. We'll put a, a construction loan of 60 or 65% below that equity and we'll, uh, We'll build a building together and, and, and sell it either before it's leased or after it's leased. In today's market, sometimes selling a building before it's leased is, uh, is attractive to investors as they anticipate more and more rent growth, but it's traditional JV equity.
1: And, and last question on that, are you doing that both on the family side and also on the real estate private equity side where you provide uh, JV equity to the local developer?
3: So we're, we're, doing it, we're, we're doing it on the real estate private equity side. So about 40%, give or take, of our activity as a real estate private equity investor today is in industrial development. Uh, but we also pursue it in the real estate development company. Uh, and that activity is in partnership with institutional investors. And so those are, those are the two areas that we're approaching the market
1: today. Got it. And then um, Amazon, are they building their own industrial now? And what does that mean for industrial developers like yourselves?
3: Well, Amazon is doing many things. They're doing many things on their own, and they're doing many things in partnership with other people, and they're acting in built-to-suit opportunities, and they're also acting as a tenant for buildings uh, that people like us build on a speculative basis, and they decide as a tenant that that we built a building in the right location to the right specifications. So Amazon is clearly a major market participant in building out their industrial footprint across the United States today. Uh, and they're 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 certainly able to move the market from their their solo activity, but this is much bigger than Amazon. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, let's move on to winners and losers with COVID, and I want to kind of touch on the 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 kind of the obvious, but also get into some things that may not be as obvious to to all of our uh, listeners on this on this webcast. So, for example, I think. It's it's easy to say that working in the office five days a week is not going to be um, as it's not going to be necessary in every single company going forward. So office demand is going to be a little lower. Hotel demand clearly has been terrible the last year, but maybe it comes back. Let's get underneath the surface a little. We talked about industrial um, being a long term trend, and maybe uh, COVID has accelerated that, but. Um, what what are some other winners and losers? And you could go uh, product type, or you could also go geographically. Like like uh, I'm here in Los Angeles, and West Los Angeles, the suburbs are doing a little better. Smaller cities are doing better. California's kind of doing worse. Phoenix is doing better. So 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 maybe how about one observation, which is just you can't you can't miss this. You got to know that this is happening. And then one observation that might be. Not as obvious to people that are outside of our industry. So, Mike, why don't we go with you first?
3: Okay. Um, The obvious: people are moving to the southeast and southwest in America. That trend was occurring pre-COVID. COVID COVID has accelerated that trend. It's for many, many different uh, factors that are that are engaged in that. You can argue it's taxes. It's not just taxes. It's the totality of experiences. It's infrastructure. It's weather. Is the build up of these cities, but America's moving to the southeast and the southwest. You can look at the domestic migration trends. you should not miss that if ultimately you want to be successful in real estate, being in a market where people are moving to is a great formula for being successful over long periods of time. so that would be an area that i would I would find as a bit self evident um, maybe an area that gets a lot of discussion um, we're not active in it, but nonetheless, is is uh, we've obviously seen a secular impact against malls, and there's a lot of discussion about converting these malls into whether it's industrial fulfillment centers or mixed-use properties uh, across America, and uh, and that seems to be something that's grabbed a lot of attention from the marketplace. I would just caution people that converting malls into other uses requires uh, entitlement and zoning restructuring and community groups and residential communities around these malls that the last thing that these people want is 18-wheel trucks coming through their neighborhoods at night. And they're going to work really hard to keep uh, single-family homes or apartment buildings from being built because they don't want to tax their school systems with additional kids. And so the duration to convert these malls from what they are today to alternative uses, it'll happen. But the duration is not three to five years. This will take a long period of time. In order for these properties to be redeveloped, because of the entitlement and zoning considerations that may not be self-evident to everybody involved in the business.
1: Terrific, Rob Robin.
2: Um, you know, to echo uh, some of Mike's commentary, uh, certainly the kind of secondary market growth has been an area that we're very very focused on. Um, uh, you know, meaning. We want, along with a lot of other managers, uh, exposure in those high growth markets like Austin, Dallas, Atlanta, Charlotte, Raleigh, et cetera. Um, but beyond the headlines of just um, those secondary growth markets, uh, to your comment at the beginning, um, I do think an area that, that does deserve more focus is just the strength of um, suburban or secondary markets within or very close to uh, the gateway markets, um, because you do have this tale of two cities just within uh, kind of the greater gateway markets as well. Um, So for example, if you look at uh, the Bay Area and the challenges that multifamily rents have had um, and occupancies uh, within the Bay Area with double digit uh, impacts on rents um, and significant occupancy challenges, um, you're seeing the inverse of that in Sacramento, which has been you know, a top three rent growth market uh, over the last 12 months. Um, and so you know, there are while there are a number of people um, and companies focused on uh, you know moving from California to a different location, there are also a lot of people who need to stay in California for a variety of reasons. Um, and it's making those secondary locations within some of these um, uh, areas very attractive and high growth. Um, so, we've been spending some time on that as well. Um, and then, from a property type perspective, you know, I would just say uh, our view on the hospitality industry um, is you really have to dig down asset by asset because it's not one size fits all in terms of the effects of COVID on on hotels. And we um, absolutely think that this is a kind of temporary shock to hospitality as opposed to what you're seeing in retail, which has been a structural decline over a very long period of time. Um, But within hospitality, you see um, areas of bright spots and and, uh, segments of the hotel industry that are gonna come back much more quickly. You know, your select serve assets that don't have a heavy F&B component, Um, you know, your assets in uh, drive to markets that have, you know, demonstrated a lot of resilience uh, post COVID. Um, And then at the other end of the spectrum, in terms of the assets that are going to take longest to recover, you know, it's those assets that rely on group business and corporate travel. Um, So your big box convention center hotels. Uh, really do need quite a fair amount of time to restabilize. So, um, you know, it, it's it's the winners and losers really require a granular exercise and, uh, you know, parsing asset profiles and submarkets in, in a, a quite detailed way.
1: Okay, I'm going to give you each a little uh, heads up. I'd like for you to each think of one question for each other that you can ask the other person based on what each uh, each of you does that you'd be interested in knowing more detail about and i'll get back to that in a minute in the meantime uh, i want to do a quick quick feedback question so let's talk about new york city and san francisco how long in each case until COVID is in the rearview mirror and things are going great guns again and everybody wants to be there again if ever you know if ever if you think that's going to happen in our careers and and you know i i I, give me give me an, an estimated number of years for each one when you think fully back to where it was. Um, and Let's go with you first, Mike, as a native New Yorker.
3: Look, the the, the mega trend, the 500-year trend can, continues to be around urbanization in major cities and great cities like New York and San Francisco being uh, a, along the coasts and in port areas. Uh, I wouldn't bet against them over a 10, 20, 30, 40-year period of time. Uh, that's not exactly the question you asked. So we're going to, as a society, be uh, vaccinated by this summer, give or take. That's pretty clear whether anyone chooses to get vaccinated is their decision, but it will be available to us. And so arguably, one would think that by the end of this year that we will absor- have absorbed this in our lives and be able to manage it at a level to allow us to engage with one another. And a city like New York has been so crushed like San Francisco because of public transportation and tall buildings and elevators and people not wanting to get close to one another. So that should begin to burn itself off you know, as we go into the end of the year and people are expected to get back to work. But there will be a residual here for quite a number of years. There are people who have already taken decisions to leave. There are people who've made temporary decisions that are turning into permanent decisions. New York's Mega trends around population growth had already started to turn against it prior to COVID. There were, there were forces at work prior to COVID that were not positive in terms of continued migration into the city. Um, you know, I think it's going to be three, four, five, six years uh, before the totality of these experiences burn off on a generation of people, and now a new group of 22 to you know twenty six year old people come into the city who didn't have any of the experiences. I don't think it's twenty four months from now, and we're back to the same population, the same economic activity, uh, and the same tax base that we had.
1: So do you think San, do you think San Francisco snaps back sooner than New York? Is that one of the things you're saying?
3: You know it's interesting because we're all biased by the seats we sit in, and I now sit in Dallas, and I can't tell you the number of people from Los Angeles and San Francisco that are moving here between Dallas and Austin. And so I see a stronger tug away from California than New York right now based upon my interaction with people and the experiences that they have that are not just COVID, but that are the totality of their life experiences in these cities right now. And whether those are taxes or other quality of life factors Uh, I've also seen quite a number, if you listen to corporations across America, the most prolific corporations across America that have said, my workforce will work from home and no longer need to be here. They're from San Francisco. The companies making the strongest statements that you'll never need to come back into the office are coming from San Francisco. So I wonder,
1: how will that take hold? Okay. Robin, what do you think?
2: I agree with with at least a three-year timeline to see um, kind of the convergence back to 2019 numbers across asset classes for New York and San Francisco. Um, And maybe longer in certain areas, but uh, three years seems, I think, a reasonable assumption. Um, The the challenges with the gateway markets and New York and San Francisco in particular is that Covid has shut down the international migration and international travel, and so all you're seeing right now is the domestic trends. And um, New York and San Francisco rely so heavily, from a demographic perspective, on that international activity. Um, you know, for a long time, if you if you've stripped out. Um, uh, the international in-migration, uh, the New York and, and California uh, population growth would not have been positive. And it's that, you know, international attraction that keeps keeps that growth positive. So this isn't um, necessarily COVID specific in terms of the kind of domestic in-migration shifting to um, lower cost and more affordable states. Um, so once you're able to have that uh, international movement, Resume, that will really help support those two cities in particular. Um, And that's also why they've been hardest hit from a hospitality perspective. You're uh, missing all of that tourism element, um, as well as the longer term uh, movements as well.
1: Okay, let's talk about office for a minute. I know um, neither of you is an office specialist, but um, many international investors especially sovereign wealth funds and pension funds they're attracted to class A office central business district in the you know in the top markets in the US is there any distressed buying opportunities for those types of buildings today and and talk about how much have values come down and give me give a range if you can from peak values which presumably would have been a little before the pandemic to today, any information either of you can shed on that?
2: So I think you know, um, the the winners in terms of multifamily and industrial and life science are very clear post COVID, and and the losers they're having the most challenge time in terms of hospitality. The hospitality and retail are very clear, and office sits in in this middle area that people. Um, it's going to take time to play out because you still have um, the the corporate decision makers in terms of leasing and relocation activities. A lot of those decisions have been put on hold. I mean, you've obviously seen some uh, companies make those decisions during COVID, but for the most part, the leasing uh, activity has been kind of short-term extensions and companies have postponed a lot of that normal decision making for the long term. Um, And as a result, just overall office transaction activity is, is way down, Um, you know, if you're an office owner uh, selling right now in this, you know, strange environment, obviously, is something that that most owners are looking to avoid. So there's not a lot of data points in terms of valuations to, you know, really answer your question, unfortunately. I would say we've seen more movement on the office side, um, on the note sale uh, side, and um, the values that we've seen be impacted from that perspective really are your kind of class B, older commodity office product. That type of office is very, very challenged, um, especially coming out of COVID, um, there's a lot of CapEx that's needed in those buildings to address today's health and wellness standards to attract or keep tenants. Um, so the the amount that it costs for older Class B office um, to, to uh, essentially keep your rent roll is pretty extraordinary. Um, for your newer Class A office that can actually meet the um, you know, new technology and health and wellness and touch, you know, touchless and outdoor amenity standards that people want to see in this post-COVID world. Um, you know, there's going to be in our view, this flight to quality from both the tenant and buyer perspective. Uh, so I think there's gonna be this winner and loser segment within the office market as well, but the transaction activity hasn't transpired to really pinpoint the value impact.
1: So no there are no data points really on on how much office values have changed i mean, I'm sure that there you could uh there must have been some transactions of of you know large office buildings. Mike, do you have any insight hey, into that
3: look there what there is in the office space now i'm I'm going to repeat uh, qu- quite a bit what I said is just uh, uncertainty um look you've seen big You asked the question about distress, big distress in big retail, big distress in hotels. Now, there's not a lot of trades there either, because the lending community is being too cooperative. But and maybe that's a question I'll ask to Robin later about distress. But in office, it's uncertainty, right? And uncertainty paralyzes people. And unless the, the lenders are going to foreclose and take control, but there hasn't been massive operational distress in office, even in New York City, where- I believe something like only 15% of the office buildings are occupied today. People are still paying rent. And so you haven't seen that kind of distress forcing you know, the sales and the lenders have actually been too cooperative, even willing to work with, waiting to get to the other side. But when you talk to people in the office business, whether you're a buyer or seller, it is the uncertainty. What percentage of people will really work from home? How many days a week will they come in? How do I underwrite the future cash flows? How do I know what this thing might be worth? And as a seller, if your lender isn't forcing you to sell it, you're not going to sell into that uncertainty. And as a buyer, you're careful about your capital buying into that uncertainty. And so this uncertainty is really stifled activity. One of the things that seems to be clear from a design perspective is we went through a 40 year trend of densification, right? We went from 250 square feet to 125 feet. 125 feet per per person in an office building. My sense is this COVID is certainly going to push people a little bit further apart from one another, and that's going to be a lingering feeling. And then owners of office buildings, if they're not modern buildings with modern uh, health and wellness and ceiling heights and HVAC systems, there's going to be a real renewed focus on wellness in the office space. And how close are you to me every single day? And that could be ultimately, that's going to be a big cost to, to owners of office buildings, but it could expand in some areas the actual square footage that a given company is going to need because they may, or may not be as dense with one another. But those are all topics on design, but in terms of transaction activity, I, I'm not an office investor. We, we do develop office buildings in high growth states, in greenfield areas like Frisco, Texas, where people are moving to. But we're not acquirer of existing office buildings, but I don't see a lot of transaction flow out there right now.
1: That raises another question. You both invest on behalf of institutional investors, and I believe you're, you need to mark to market quarterly the value of assets that are in the portfolios that you, that you manage. Do either of you have data points, either from your own portfolios or elsewhere, of of asset types that have declined based on the the appraisal or have the appraisals come through close to their peak value because cap rates have compressed since since covet as well
2: um we've seen appraisal adjustments in um hospitality um in non grocery anchored retail uh, so retail you know the grocery anchored and high credit tenant, long duration retail is, is actually a favorite asset class still, but all other types of retail uh, are definitely are reappraised downward. Um, and, you know, uh, kind of anything that has restaurant F&B entertainment oriented exposure that's uh, that's been uh, shut down during COVID or a very low occupancy during COVID, all of those have, have certainly had effects um, from an appraisal perspective. Um, but otherwise, you know, the, the just the broad la- lack of transaction activity, um, uh, because appraisers are backward looking in terms of comparable sale data points, uh, it, it continues to be largely supportive um, for assets not to get reappraised significantly beyond the most hurt property types, because appraisers just don't have those new data points uh, to comp to.
1: OK, Mike, um, if you have anything to add, go ahead. Otherwise, I want to get to one other topic and then I want to let you each ask questions of each other.
3: I'll, I'll try and just go out a little further out of the limb. You obviously look up public markets and and you can look to appraisers and private markets. I'll make a generalization across the spectrum just for for the group. It seems to me that when you're looking at these various metrics of value, it looks like the hotel industry kind of down 10 to 25%. Uh, You you look at these big malls and these big power centers, these big retail, these, these are worth less today as well, but not all retail is worth less today. Grocery anchor shopping centers and small food and service centers have done great. right? And so retail is a dichotomy of values You know, the office sector we talked about, it's uncertain. It's probably not a net positive, but you haven't seen much movement there. Multifamily's done great. I know there are headlines out there that people aren't paying rent, but the truth of the matter is in class A, in high quality multifamily throughout the United States, people are nesting in their homes and they're paying rent and rent is going up. And multifamily is more attractive today than it was. Cap rates are lower and industrial's on fire and worth more. And so this valuation spectrum, the impact here has been, there's been winners and losers from a valuation perspective. And that's how I see it, based upon appraisals and private market pundits and public market forecasters and, and transactions that are taking place today.
1: Okay, I want to switch gears. We've got probably a little less than 10 minutes to go and ask a different type of question. Many of the people in our audience are in a position of placing capital with sponsors, either fund managers or individual transaction sponsors that are raising LP capital. And I want to see if you could each give them some advice, maybe even ideally um, based on mistakes that you've experienced in your career, that you know, the, the worst transactions you've been involved with. What would you tell our audience that, that they should? not do or avoid that maybe so they could save them some trouble that you experienced through each of your extensive careers in real estate when they're making investments with real estate sponsors of any kind, whether it be a fund manager or, a, um, or someone that's buying a specific property and is raising capital for that project. Any, any learnings that you can share? And maybe uh, whoever chooses, uh, whoever's got something to say first, please go ahead.
2: Um, I guess I'll I'll jump in first. Uh, So, you know, when investing with the fund manager, um, I think one of the things that that a lot of investors may have learned over the last year is that, um, you know, that fund manager's existence and experience across multiple cycles really does matter. Um, You've seen, you know, over the last 10 years, just a proliferation of new funds and new managers Uh, That didn't have experience managing portfolios through the great financial crisis. Um, And a lot of those new funds and new managers uh, didn't necessarily have a fully built out asset management team to deal with the very unusual types of challenges that COVID has thrown at all of us um, and may not have, uh, you know, we've seen firsthand a lot of funds who didn't structure their leverage in a way that um, could withstand. Uh, shocks to the system and, um, uh, you know, deep challenges within the portfolio. Um, So, you know, my my advice would would really be to dig into the track record and understand how um, a manager has performed at different challenging points in time. And uh, there should be lessons learned. There will be deals that have lost money if you've invested through multiple cycles. um, And making sure that you have a manager who um, has actually incorporated best practices based on those lessons learned, I think is just incredibly important.
3: Um, look, as any asset class, there are many ways to invest in real estate and, 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 and different funds and sponsors out there looking for lower risk, low return strategies, higher higher risk, higher return strategies. But within all that, if I had to boil down to one thing over cycles and over time, it's leverage. It's fundamentally our ability, we're a private illiquid asset class. No one can guess economic trends or capital market cycles with any degree of specificity. Make sure that you financed your property in a way that if you get that incredibly wrong, that there's no scenario where you can't get to the other side of that economic cycle. It is fundamentally leverage that will destroy your returns more than anything else. Uh, and, And that's something to be incredibly careful of and make sure that your sponsor manager is really capitalizing their investments in a way that if they're wrong in terms of their exit and they need to hold this through a cycle or through a period of time, that they'll be able to do that, whether it's the underlying leverage of the real estate or the capital and reserves necessary to protect protect and preserve that asset during a period of financial market distress.
1: Okay, Mike, why don't we go to your question for Robin? So when
3: COVID first broke, there was a huge amount of activity and energy around raising large pools of capital to pursue distress in real estate, let alone the tens, hundreds of billions of dollars that's already on the sidelines from existing market participants, but there was all sorts of folks out there raising large funds to pursue it. What's going on in the pursuit of distressed real estate today? What is the reality of that capital being 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 put to work? In in any of these distressed real estate areas,
2: um, so I think a lot of a lot of the capital that was raised initially post COVID um, uh, was best suited if it was able to take advantage actually of distressed in the public markets where, you know, things are liquid and could actually transact at distressed prices. Um, within the private real estate markets. Um, There definitely has been, uh, I think, less distressed volume than investors were anticipating because of the dynamics that we discussed originally where um, lenders have been forbearing and modifying and extending um, uh, to the extent possible with their borrowers uh, to to provide a lifeline. but it you know it will unravel. it's It's just a matter of time. Um, and there have been situations to uh, to pick off over the last twelve months. And I think that as the the uh, economy reopens, you'll get to the point on a number of assets where the borrowers just or the owners just aren't able. Uh, to continue to fund the operating deficits, uh, given that this has gone on for so long. And so it will just take time for the distress to work through the system. Um, But ultimately, uh, from a volume perspective, we're not expecting it to be as large as uh, what everyone saw in the great financial crisis, where essentially... uh, Parties on multiple sides of a transaction were forcing that sale, and uh, in many cases, that that's not happening today.
1: Thank you. And Robin, your question for Mike.
2: So, you know, we've seen uh, cap rates on uh, multifamily and industrial over the last twelve months tighten up to fifty basis points in certain markets. Um, Given that, you know, incredible pricing dynamic, are you a buyer or seller today in multifamily and industrial?
3: So we're, we're for the most part, whether it's as an investor or as a developer, we're in the manufacturing business right now of those asset classes is what I would say. Um, the opportunity for us to, as we look at the marketplace, we think uh, cap rates are a component, of it, but it's fundamental rental growth and rental demand as well. What we see—it's the operating fundamentals behind those asset classes that that is what is attracting us. And those operating fundamentals uh, seem to be screaming for more supply. You know, America is underhoused by millions of housing units. Right? It's not all going to be met in single-family homes. A lot of it's going to be met in apartments. Uh, E-commerce and other forces are at work, and so this fundamental demand uh, is putting us in a position that we see the opportunity is creating new properties. You know, for this underlying demand. And as we build them, some of them we do hold for long periods of time because that's the investment strategy for ourselves and our partners. We're looking to build to core, um, and when we develop these properties, we can develop them at you know 100 to 200 basis point yield on cost differentials to the current cap rate environment, and and or we'll sell at that point in time to someone who wants to own a core piece of real estate at those attractive cap rates, and we'll realize the profits at that moment in time from taking that risk and that work of building these buildings.
1: Okay, so we're down to our last question. And I'm going to make it a hybrid. So I'd like for you to share anything that you think might be valuable to the audience, um, if you have anything like that, and or answer my last question, namely, interest rates and inflation. Obviously, um, those two things both affect real estate investment decisions. And I'd like to know what your internal assumptions are today about both interest rates and inflation when you underwrite, when you discuss investment strategy, what are you you internally talking about with respect to both those things? So why don't we go to Mike, and then let's end with Robin.
3: So on the one hand, I've spent my entire career now from the very beginning that interest rates were on their way up. Uh, that inflation was on its way up, and I've spent my entire career now watching the exact opposite thing happen, and the smartest people in the world from the most well-heeled institutions consistently telling the marketplace that it was going up tomorrow. And so now the question is, we go over the COVID and we wind up with a 0.7, 10-year bond, the answer is it must go north from here. And there's in the marketplace in the past week or two, there's been inflation concerns out there. The ability for any of us to guess the future with respect to interest rates and inflation is a bit of a fool's errand. And so the question is, when you know you don't know, right? how do you run your business? And so fundamentally, we, we generally are, from a modeling perspective, making some increase in interest rates on a forward curve. Uh, we're looking at exit cap rates that are slightly uh, greater than the entry cap rates in the, in the, in the investments that we have. Uh, but we are not looking at a scenario of runaway inflation uh, in our investment period over the next three to five years. And we would expect an inflation environment to be consistent with w- what it has been in the, in the very, very low single digits. That is how we're running our business at this moment in time, notwithstanding all of the anxiety, given all of this money that is being pumped into our system today uh, and the long-term implications that may
2: happen. I think it's a a really interesting uh, backdrop economically for commercial real estate. You know, you have um, the recent stimulus package hitting this quarter of, you know, 900 billion, which just is an unprecedented, enormous amount of stimulus being pumped into the economy. Um, And then you have on top of that, you know, the new administration's uh, proposal that's multiples of that uh potentially also hitting this year. Uh, so you have just this tremendous amount of stimulus, which gives kind of a, a backdrop of inflation. Um, while at the same time, uh, the Fed has been very clear from a monetary uh, policy perspective that we're in a continued low interest rate environment for the meaningful future. Um, so that is just a broadly favorable backdrop for commercial real estate. Um, and uh, you know, all of this uh, underlying support uh, between interest rates and stimulus, um, I think sets us up very well for an interesting recovery across, you know, multiple asset classes within real estate. Um, so we're, you know, we're pretty excited about uh, leaning into those asset classes and markets that are going to benefit the most from that dynamic.
3: Yeah. Jan, I think for the audience as well, inflation isn't necessarily a bad thing for the real estate industry. You know, we sh- we should step back and first of all, cap rates are not 100% correlated with interest rates at all. Second thing is, you know, real assets and hard assets seem to do generally well in inflationary periods of time and there are some asset classes like multifamily that rents are reset literally every day and taking advantage of that inflation environment, the hotel business, rents are reset every day. So maybe if you have a 20-year fixed bondable lease with no, uh, uh, with no bumps on an annual basis or CPI bumps, that works more like a fixed income instrument. And that physical building may be disadvantaged during an inflationary period of time. But a lot of real estate will do well in an inflationary period of time. And so it's not all bad.
1: Well said. I want to thank Robin Potts from Canyon, Mike. Levy from Crow Holdings, uh, John, Darcy, and SALT organization, and then I want to thank our audience as well for joining us for this conversation
0: today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, everybody who tuned into today's SALT Talk with Robin Potts and Michael Levy, hosted by our friend Jan Bresky. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of today's talk or any of our previous talks, you can access our entire archive and sign up for all future SALT Talks on our website, at salt.org backslash talks. You can also watch all these episodes on our YouTube channel and you can become a subscriber there. Uh, It's called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. We're most active on Twitter at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. We love growing our community. And on behalf of the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We hope to see you back here soon again on Salt Talks.